Welcome to American Dissident Voices. I'm Kevin Alfred Strom. The great poet Ezra Pound, when newly arrived in Italy in 1958, after 13 years of hellish false imprisonment in U.S. mental hospitals, was asked by a reporter what it was like being released from an insane asylum in America. Pound replied that he had never been released from an insane asylum in America, adding that such a thing was impossible, because he said, All America is an insane asylum. When he finally walked out the door of St. Elizabeth's into the Washington, D.C. sunshine, he was just walking from a relatively small mental ward into a much larger and even more dangerous one. To his credit, he kept on going until he was well clear of the striped rag and the nutcases who still wave it. I was just two years old when Pound said that, and it wasn't until many years later that I or anyone I knew had even the faintest inkling of just how right Pound was, of just how crazy things were getting in America. Being in America is actually worse than being in a mental hospital because, one, at least in a mental hospital, they're trying to cure you, not make you crazier, and two, because America is also like a sinking ship. America as a nation is going down, just as surely as the Titanic was going down once she hit the iceberg. But with one big difference, the crew and passengers of the Titanic were not, so far as I am aware, insane. The captain didn't steer full speed ahead to collide with as many additional icebergs as possible. The crew didn't argue with the fleeing passengers, trying to convince them that air and seawater were equal, and that it was evil to breathe the one and refuse to breathe the other. On today's program, I'll sketch the plight of the sane, in Crazy Land USA, and in future programs, I'll talk about escape from this sinking asylum. To begin with, let me tell you about the time I first came face-to-face -face with the opponent, by which I mean organized, agenda-driven Jewish groups, as an adult. It's one of the things that brought me to sanity. In 1978, I was a broadcast engineer working at a major market radio station in the Washington, D.C. area, WEAM. Being a bit naive and a bit adventurous at the age of 22, I had volunteered, in addition to my engineering duties, to be the public service director of the station, a non-paid position which primarily consisted of selecting and rewriting the public service announcements, also called PSAs, which the station aired without charge for nonprofit groups. You know the sort of thing. The American Legion is having a Veterans Day dinner. The local church youth group is holding a fun fair to raise money. And the Electric Power Council wants to remind you not to drop AC appliances into the tub while you're bathing, and the like. One of the groups which was always trying to get free airtime was Planned Parenthood. I never used any of their announcements, all of which I put directly in the trash. There were three main reasons. One was that the station's owners had told me not to give free airtime to any group which was highly controversial and likely to offend advertisers or listeners. 
and Planned Parenthood being a major provider of abortions was quite controversial. Secondly, even though I wasn't yet fully racially and politically aware at that point in my life, hey, I even gave the giant Jewish community center in suburban Maryland some free plugs, I found the entire concept of young women wanting convenience abortions to be repugnant. And thirdly, Planned Parenthood was very aggressive in trying to force me to air their PSAs, and I don't respond well to the hard sell. I didn't engage them, I just ignored them. When the hard sell via the mail and the telephone fell flat, the management at Planned Parenthood must have decided that talking to Kevin Strom was an exercise in futility, so they called up my boss, WEAM's general manager, Harry Averill, who passed the buck again to me, after agreeing that a representative from Planned Parenthood could come to the station and try to convince me in person that their announcements should be aired. And what a representative she was! Hugely obese, with short, black, kinky hair and light but sallow skin, convex facial features that screamed Chosenite, though I didn't know it at the time, she had a certain something about her poorly groomed, mannish, scurfy self that radiated aggressive lesbianism. She looked like a somewhat less gracile version of Bella Abzug on a bad hair day. After applying significant G-forces to my only office chair, Ms. Chosen tried every trick in the book to wheedle or cajole me into airing their announcements. She began with obviously insincere compliments. Not a good idea with me, since my first instinct is to never trust a phony. Nevertheless, I was polite. She went on and on about the tragedies of teenage pregnancy, the need to reduce the population and increase the quality of life through family planning, and other such boilerplate. I actually had to draw her out on her groups and her more controversial stances. And draw her out, I did, to my horror. As she prated nasally on about feminism, and the terrible oppression of women in the bad old America, about the evils of early marriage and pregnancy, about how we must become more open to homosexuality and other alternative sexualities. And as she became more and more passionate in response to my questions, I began to realize something. I began to realize that this woman, or creature, was motivated, deep down motivated, by a seething, boiling hatred of normal, healthy sexuality. I had a eureka moment, though I kept it to myself. Ms. Chosen, I saw with sudden clarity, hated everything about the traditional white family and traditional sexual roles. And I sensed her real, though unstated, problem. She truly hated the fact that healthy, young, white American women liked white men, and wanted to have their babies. Basically, it was as simple and as terrifying as that. At twenty-two, I didn't know enough to identify her as Jewish or part of any Jewish power structure, and I probably wouldn't have couched my insights in racial terms then. Though, like almost all Americans of those times, when I said or thought the words traditional family, in my mind, I saw a white family. But I knew this. 
I knew that she hated what I instinctively saw as sacred. My instincts were sound, and my awakening was just beginning. I had never sensed anything like that hatred before. I had never imagined that something like that could exist, but it did. And as I became more politically aware in the coming years, I was to see such hatred, often coming out of such strange, distorted, not-us physiognomies, too, again and again. Ms. Chosen and her kind, I now realize, are the creators of Asylum America, with white Americans, their victims and inmates. Jews may be a little crazy themselves, with their over-the-top aggressiveness, with their everybody-hates-us paranoia as identity, with their deeply conflicted simultaneous hatred and worship of themselves. But the Jews in positions of power know exactly what they're doing to us. They teach us that race doesn't exist, but no one is more racially conscious than they. It was a Jew, Disraeli, who said that, quote, race is all. It is the key to history. Close quote. The whole basis of Jewish existence is maintaining their separateness and uniqueness in a hostile world of other races and peoples, almost all of whom they seem to believe are just a few steps short of tossing them into ovens. They teach us that it is the ultimate in evil for whites to ever have a racially based state or racially conscious leadership, witness their hatred of National Socialist Germany and their demonization of any form of racial nationalism in any white nation, from the old America's race-based citizenship and immigration laws, to Jobbik in Hungary and the Golden Dawn in Greece, and Vladimir Putin's very mild form of nationalism in Russia. Yet ancestry, race, is the very definition of citizenship in their nation, Israel. They want racial nationalism and self-determination for themselves, and they want to deny racial nationalism and self-determination to us, their host peoples. They teach us that homosexual sex is great. Sex with blacks and other non-whites is great. Sex with effective contraception is great. But if you slip up and horror of horrors conceive a white child, freely available abortion is great too. But in their own communities, the Chosenites are very concerned with their group's biological, racial survival, and they rail against intermarriage between Jews and other races. In Israel, they've erected legal barriers to intermarriage, just like the legal barriers to interracial marriage they fought against and finally got repealed here in the U.S. back in the 1960s. Racial nationalism for them. Racial suicide for us. In short, the Jews create endless intellectual and pseudoscientific justifications for disrupting our normal mating and childbearing behavior, with the end result being that every single white nation, including ours, now has a below-replacement birth rate, with that of most European nations now being below the level from which no society in history has ever been able to recover.
some even below the level from which it is mathematically impossible to recover. Meanwhile, they have driven our people insane with their lies, their social pressure, and their relentless propaganda, to the point that our demographic death spiral is considered to be a non-issue by the lemmings and trendies among us. Not only is it a non-issue, it's a forbidden issue. Bring it up and be prepared to be attacked as a racist. The issues that agitate the lemmings are the issues that have been chosen for them by the chosen. The slightest verbal offense against a homosexual or non-white is grounds for hysteria, dismissal, disgrace, and dispossession. To question the wisdom of mutilating one's body into a sick parody of that of the opposite sex is to be the crassest of bigots. To doubt that Jamal and Shaniqua are the exact equals of ourselves is to be evil even though their massive and inescapable inequality is right before our eyes. To doubt that the enemies of the Jewish state are our enemies too, terrorists who only deserve to be slaughtered on sight, and against whom it is our perpetual duty to send our sons and daughters to be killed in endless Middle Eastern wars. To doubt that is to become in the eyes of the lemmings a demon incarnate, an anti-Semite. They have truly driven our people insane and intimidated the still sane faction largely into silence. It's as I've told you earlier. I believe that the opponent is driven by a deep-down moral code that is never stated openly but is nonetheless very real. Whatever brings more white children into the world is evil. Whatever prevents white children from coming into the world is good. Understand that, and you understand everything that is being done to us. I first came face to face with that hate-driven genocidal agenda in my office in Arlington those many years ago. Just a few months later, I had another experience at WEAM, that convinced me that our society was literally going mad. Harry Averill, who was fairly well known as a pioneer of Top 40 radio in the 1960s and 70s, was, as I've mentioned, the general manager of the station. One summer day, a half hour or so after meeting in his office with a black employee named Mel, Averill busied himself at his desk for a few minutes and then walked into the reception area and called to his secretary. Vera, he asked her in a loud voice that could be heard in all the adjacent offices, can you tell me, please, is Mel black or white? I can't remember. Of course, this was a blatantly transparent ploy to show how non-racist he was. He didn't even notice Mel's race, or so he wanted us to believe. Now, I don't think very many people would be fooled by that, but it is indicative of the mentality that Averill correctly imputed to most of his listeners. They have internalized an inverted, actually insane moral system under which disregarding race is a high moral good. 
when they inevitably fail to live up to that ideal of denying the reality of race, when they do actually notice that the races are different, when they have forbidden feelings of preference or liking for their own race, they actually feel guilty. And when they feel guilty, they tend to compensate in other ways, perhaps by spitting venom at or even charging with moral or legal crimes those who do openly take notice of the facts that the races aren't equal and that Jews aren't angels, or perhaps by adopting Kenyans or by some other evil or folly. So it's not always that they don't notice the facts of racial inequality or even the looming extinction of their own people, the proof of which is all around them. It's that they have absorbed an essentially religious ethos that tells them in what sounds like their own still small voice that it is wrong to notice or be concerned about such things. That's the power of mental conditioning begun in childhood. And that's what all of us have experienced in post-1945 America. In 1978, I was 22 and still ignorant of many of the principles and forces that make the world what it is. But I had just come face to face with the reality-denying madness infecting most of my fellow Americans, and the seething hatred of those who brought that madness upon us. On my next program, I'll talk about how those of us who are still sane might escape from the asylum.
For blood and for soil we will work, we will toil. Heaven is born on the earth. The heroes arise as we shout to the skies. We will now have our rebirth.